across Europe, many men were succumbing to the severe weather as temperatures dipped in some places to minus 30 degrees. At the army training centres on the south coast of England, a few unfortunate recruits were being dragged from their billets, frozen in the sleeping positions in which they had died during the bitterly cold night. Britain had been at war with Germany for little more than four months, but full-scale fighting had not yet begun. A massive mobilisation of men was taking place throughout the country. Young volunteer recruits and conscripts were travelling from every corner of the UK and congregating upon the numerous supply and training depots along the southern English coast. When war was declared in the previous September, Walter Hurst had immediately gone down to the Army Recruiting Office in Bell Street in Dundee to volunteer, but time after time he was told he was not yet needed. Walter's father, John, had fought the Germans during World War I with the Royal Garrison Artillery, the heavy guns of the army. At the start of that war, John was first sent to the strategically important and picturesque Mediterranean island of Malta, then later to the muddy killing fields of France. The brutality and death rate inflicted by the so-called Great War decimated an entire generation. Per capita, more Scots died in World War I than any other nation on earth, and virtually every community lost a son, a brother, an uncle or a father. To this day, in almost every village, no matter how small, and in every town in Scotland, a memorial stands listing the names of those who paid the ultimate sacrifice. But there was nothing great or glorious in their slaughter. It was a conflict that was meant to bring an end to all wars. 19% of all British armed forces deaths in World War I were Scots, despite the nation's population representing only 9% of the UK total. First World War soldiers from other parts of the UK had a 1 in 11 chance of being killed in action. If you were a Scot in the British Army, those odds dropped dramatically to just 1 in 4. Although John Hurst survived a gas attack late in 1918 and survived the direct, unrelenting butchery of that war, the effects stayed with him for years. The physical scars inflicted on his lungs as a result of the gas attack gave him health complications that plagued him for the rest of his life. In October 1938, less than a year before the outbreak of World War II, John died of a heart attack, exacerbated with respiratory disease. He was just 54 years old. When war was finally declared again in September 1939, a year after his father's death, Walter believed that joining up would allow him to finish the job his dad began. The premature death of his father undoubtedly had a significant bearing on his decision to volunteer at the first opportunity. However, his frustration began to boil over as he was repeatedly told he was not yet required and the army instructed him to return the following week. Finally, after being turned away once again, Walter exploded in a fit of rage 
in the Bell Street recruitment offices, to the astonishment of the recruiting sergeants. He stormed out, resigning himself to the possibility that he might never get into the war at all. But as 1939 became 1940, he made one last effort to volunteer, and this time he made it. He was issued with a travel warrant and told to make his way to Clacton-on-Sea in Essex, on the southeast coast of England. Charles Napier had just finished his apprenticeship when conscription papers came through to his home in Cooper Angus in rural Perthshire. A joiner to trade, he dutifully resigned from the job he was working on in the northeast, and on the 5th of January he headed to the recruiting centre at Woolman Hill in Aberdeen, only to be told, like Walter, that the army wasn't quite ready for him. He asked one of the NCOs, the non-commissioned officers, what he was to do with himself in the meantime. He had no job to return to and no means to support himself, and so the recruiting officer recommended that he volunteer for one of the engineering companies. This would ensure he was sent for basic training immediately. The following day, he got on the train at Aberdeen and began the long journey down to Clacton-on-Sea, stopping briefly at Dundee, where more young recruits embarked. It was a time when long-distance travel for work, or indeed holidays, was uncommon for ordinary working-class people, and this trip was to prove anything but a holiday. Nonetheless, the men were excited by the prospect of what might await them, although they had no real idea what that was. Most were motivated simply by a modest, quiet sense of duty, a reflection of the social mores that existed at the time. After more than ten hours on the overnight train, during which both men sat upright, managing occasionally to doze off, Charlie and Walter arrived at London's King's Cross station at around 6am. Clambering out of the carriage, the two men made their way to the information board. They were amazed by the sheer number of people going about. As they headed to the underground staircase to catch their connection to Clacton-on-Sea, they were met by a surging crowd heading directly up the steps towards them. Both men stood there frozen with astonishment as hundreds of London commuters inhospitably squeezed their way past on their way to work. Neither man had seen anything like it before. Finally, they were able to make it down the steps and found their way to Waterloo Station and from there caught the London and North Eastern Railway train to Clacton-on-Sea. A new holiday camp operated by Billy Butlin had just been opened at the seaside resort in June 1938, but this had now been turned over as part of the war effort. As the train carrying Walter and Charlie rolled in, several newly captured prisoners of war, mostly U-boat crews, were being held in the chalet accommodation. This site had recently been converted to serve two main roles, as a POW camp and supply and training facility for the Royal Engineers and other support units of the British Army. The Army had used the site for many years prior to the outbreak of war, and this was one of the reasons Butlins had purchased it, to make use of the extensive accommodation blocks which had been built primarily for military use. 
After war broke out, the army once again took back control of the camp, and barbed wire and armed centuries replaced the redcoats and variety shows that had entertained families throughout the summer of 1939. Charlie and Walter made their way from the train station by foot to the camp, and still wearing civilian clothing, were billeted overnight in one of the chalets. Other recruits from all over the country were there too. None of them had any sense of military rule or order, and were instructed to sleep in threes on large straw sack mattresses, which were known as palliasses, on the floor. The following morning, Charlie was ordered to proceed to 665 Artisan Works Company, but within a few short hours, the NCO told him to grab his suitcase and report the next morning to 663 Artisans, who at that point were short of men. It was typical of the confusion and organised chaos that surrounded the general mobilisation of men during early 1940. The following morning, the 10th of January... At 0900 hours, the 266 men of 663 Artisan Works Company Royal Engineers were formed up for the first time and inspected. Charlie was to regret his transfer out of 665, as he later learned that after his evacuation from France in June 1940, that company was redeployed and stationed in Aberdeen, a short journey from his home. 663, by contrast, were to be sent to the Faroe Islands, halfway between Shetland and Iceland, in the middle of the North Atlantic Ocean, with no prospect of home leave. The War Diary for 663 Company, an operational logbook maintained by the commanding officer for each unit, records that the men were made up of skilled volunteer tradesmen who had come from all parts of the UK and Ireland. Initially, 2nd Lieutenant Holloway was ordered to take command of the company during the two weeks' basic training that the new recruits were to receive. Lieutenant Holloway gave the men, who were still in their civilian clothing, a short, introductory speech before dismissing them. The following day, the men ate in the Butlins camp dining halls before being paraded for inspection, still wearing their own clothes, having not yet been issued with any military kit or uniform. At 11am, the men received their first pay of 10 shillings per man. Company Sergeant Major Topper Brown bellowed orders as the men clumsily formed into ranks. Quarter Sergeant Major Rees and Pay Sergeant Poole, both of whom had served previously with the Territorial Army, were assigned to the company and made it clear to the new recruits that they aimed to make real soldiers out of them. Percy Brown was another fresh member of the company and had arrived on the 9th of January. Decades later, he would still recall vividly the bitterly cold weather at the time and the icier Sergeant Major Topper Brown, whose surname was the only thing the two men had in common. When you've been in the army for 26 years, you can talk to me and I'll do you a favour, the army regular told the new recruits before adding, now here's a razor blade, and for fuck's sake, use it. He wasn't really a very nice man, Percy remembered, and certainly not typical of most of the NCOs that I later came across. On the day war broke out, Percy had been celebrating two years of wedded bliss. Things had been going well for him until the outbreak of war. 
He had been employed as an electrician for eight years and had just reached the full rate for the job, a grand hourly total of one shilling, ten pence and three farthings. Percy's first-born son, Colin, was just ten days away from his first birthday when they turned on the radio to hear the announcement from Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain that Britain was at war with Germany. I am speaking to you from the Cabinet Room at 10 Downing Street. This morning, the British ambassador in Berlin handed the German government a final note stating that unless we heard from them by 11 o'clock, that they were prepared at once to withdraw their troops from Poland, a state of war would exist between us. I have to tell you now that no such undertaking has been received and that consequently this country is at war with Germany. Percy had already built an Anderson air raid shelter at the bottom of the garden and within minutes of Chamberlain's broadcast, as if to bring home the reality of the situation, the long, haunting drone of air raid sirens sounded. Percy and his young family dashed up the garden towards the shelter, only to find it full of water. Luckily, their neighbours, whose own shelter was just ten feet away, beckoned them over. But before they could climb in, the all-clear was sounded. Never mind, Percy said to his wife. There'll be other times. The following day, Percy had gone to work as normal in Norbury. The phone kept ringing throughout the day, as job after job was cancelled. No one seemed to know what was happening. The uncertainty of war was sending many into unnecessary panic, and before long, other men at the firm were being laid off. Finally, Percy's boss said, I don't know what to do with you. Percy had a couple of other jobs he knew he could pick up, so accepted his cards and was given an hour's pay in lieu of notice. Initially, he ended up working at Biggin Hill Aerodrome, but was again laid off on New Year's Eve and remained out of work for a week before an old workmate suggested he join him in enrolling at Mitcham Road Barracks in Croydon. Unlike Walter and Charlie, there was no attempt to delay the men's enlistment, and within two hours they had been signed up. Can you get down to Clacton today? the recruiting sergeant asked. Percy and his pal, somewhat bewildered at the speed of their entry into the army, asked if they could go home first and tell their wives. The layout of the billets at the Butlins holiday camp did not help in the organisation of men, and the recruits often found themselves lost in the camp, unable to find their allocated chalet. Many other units were converging on the camp, and Lieutenant Holloway finally received orders to move his men out of the camp to two deserted and run-down hotels in Clacton, the Worcester and the Marine View, near to the pier. The men lay down, straw palliasses for bedding, which accommodated three men at a time, and coal was provided to heat the large rooms. Lieutenant Holloway noted in the company war diary that the short winter days were particularly cold. One hundred of the men were billeted on the ground floor of the Worcester, and the remainder at the Marine View, which still operates as a guesthouse today. Two days after the company was formed, their great coats and boots were issued, 
and the company divided into five temporary sections for drill purposes. Being an artisan works company, selection to different sections would ultimately be determined by individual trade skills to ensure an equal distribution of tradesmen throughout the company. 663 were made up chiefly of joiners, bricklayers, electricians and supported by other trades. Major de Hamel, an officer from the Duke of Wellington's regiment, was responsible for organising the basic training of the company. You men are little more than civilians in soldiers' clothing, he berated the assembled company on their first full day of basic training. It was a perfect description for the tens of thousands of civilians who were now mobilising across the country. By today's military standards, two weeks' basic training was hopelessly inadequate for the task these young men were expected to undertake, albeit 663 Artisan Works Company should, theoretically, be deployed many miles behind the front lines, working principally on support infrastructure. They were not expected to see much actual combat. Nevertheless, they were still required to be trained in the basic skills of soldiering. By contrast, German forces had been in training for years and were perfecting a new type of combat warfare called Blitzkrieg, a lightning full frontal assault that swept aside all in its way. As the men of 663 marched awkwardly up and down Marine Parade, the main thoroughfare and promenade of Clacton's sea front, the Germans were perfecting the lethal Blitzkrieg tactic. This new type of warfare used fast-moving and lightly armoured vehicles together with close air support to inflict a devastating punch against enemy troop formations, formations that had altered little since the end of the First World War. When it was finally used in May 1940, it led, in a few short weeks, to the biggest military catastrophe for British forces since the American Revolutionary Wars. Blitzkrieg, Lightning War, had been developed by an enthusiastic German army officer, Hans Guderin, who had written a pamphlet called Achtung Panzer, and which Adolf Hitler had subsequently read. Hitler was, according to eyewitness accounts, enthralled by Guderin's new tactic that focused on speed and rapid troop movement. Guderin told Hitler that if his tactic was acted upon, he could reach the French coast at the English Channel within weeks. Fellow German officers openly mocked Guderin and told Hitler that the plan was impossible. Hitler disagreed, and with his own bitter personal memories of the stagnant and grinding First World War, he approved the new military method. The subsequent success of it in May and June 1940 was used with equal effectiveness against the massive armies of the Soviet Union the following year. Back in Clacton, Percy was struggling to get to grips with the new drill and inspection regime. The men were issued with .303 Lee-Enfield rifles. These had been standard issue for troops during the last war. 
the point three o three had been first brought into service with the British Army in nineteen o three and had seen only a few modifications during the intervening years. During one inspection of rifles, Sergeant Major Topper Brown yelled at Percy, "I can't see down your barrel, sapper." Well, you wouldn't," Percy replied matter-of-factly. "It's full of grease." In plain Sergeant Major language, Percy was told how to remedy that problem. In the Royal Engineers, the ordinary ranks of men were known as sappers, derived from the French word sap, meaning spade work or trench, but generally accepted in place of the term private, which was the common term used for most other non-officer ranks of the British Army. Fifteenth of January, the sappers were moved again and billeted once more in the empty Ebor Lodge Hotel due to overcrowding at the Marine View. The following day, the company's new commanding officer arrived. Captain Richard George Morgan was a Welshman and experienced veteran of the First War. Morgan had an impeccable military career and had won the Military Cross during a two-day engagement with German forces in November 1918, just three days before the end of the war. He had commanded a unit of the Royal Field Artillery, and his medal citation read, Lieutenant Richard George Morgan, Royal Field Artillery, attached to the 310th West Riding Brigade, Royal Field Artillery, for conspicuous gallantry and perseverance on the 6th and 7th of November 1918 at Le Trigor and near Hargean and the Ardennes. He kept in close touch with the attacking infantry, advancing his guns in the face of intense fire so as to afford them the utmost support. The following day he carried out a similar task, advancing his section on very bad tracks through heavy shellfire. He made several reconnaissance throughout the day, which enabled him to afford effectual support to the infantry. Morgan had joined the army as a private in the Queen's Royal West Surrey Regiment in 1914 and was initially posted to India where he served as a Lance Corporal with the 15th Battalion. By December and only a few short days after arriving in India, Morgan's unit were sent to Mesopotamia, now modern-day Iraq in Syria and the reputed cradle of civilization. Soon after, Morgan's battalion was attached to the Northumberland Fusiliers, and he was promoted on the 16th of November 1915 to the rank of second lieutenant. Such a rapid promotion strongly suggests he was a determined and outstanding soldier. Shortly after, he was transferred to France and the 4th Battalion North Staffordshire Regiment, who landed at La Havre on the 7th of October 1917. After another promotion, Morgan joined the Royal Field Artillery with the rank of Lieutenant and was involved in a number of engagements in northern France, right up until the end of the war. 
whilst most soldiers of World War I who survived chose to be demobbed and returned to their families, Morgan instead decided to continue his army career, despite the horrors he had witnessed. But the First World War had hardened him, and he was a tough disciplinarian who took no nonsense from either the ordinary ranks or officers under his command. As World War II got underway, Morgan had been training anti-tank crews at a base outside Arbroath, a few miles northeast of Dundee, and which now serves as the base for 4-5 Commando Royal Marines. Morgan had risen to the rank of captain in the 53rd Anti-Tank Training Regiment, part of the Royal Artillery, but due to the chronic shortage of officers in the Royal Engineers, he had been transferred and received orders to travel to Clacton to take command of 663. He had, according to his men, a strong, thick Welsh accent, but his embrace of the officer class and their posh upper-class accents had resulted in a peculiar alteration of his own voice. This meant he was unable to clearly pronounce words with the letter R in them replacing them instead with double use, which caused some suppressed amusement and billet room mimicry among his men. What was immediately clear to the men, however, was that Morgan was not a man to be humoured and was a strict authoritarian, a gritty, war-hardened soldier of his day. He was a bit of a Hitler character in those early days, Charlie Napier later recalled. He was very strict. On the 17th of January, Morgan supervised the issuing to the men of steel helmets and respirators. He had seen it firsthand, the dire indiscriminate carnage caused by gas attacks during the First War, and knew that the respirators offered only limited assistance if a sustained chemical assault were to take place. Walter also knew from his father's experience that the gas masks offered only limited protection. That same day, Snow fell heavily in many parts of the UK, and in Clacton, 30 centimetres was recorded. The landscape became covered by a thick, white blanket, which offered no additional warmth to the men of 663. During this time, some of the men had managed to acquire a cockerel, presumably from a nearby farm, and for a short while, Ginger George was the official company mascot. George's natural crowing instincts were, however, significantly out of sync, perhaps on account of the particularly cold and dark winter, and his crowing during the very early hours of the morning and late at night soon began to test the patience of some of the sappers. On the 18th of January, the men were paraded in front of Captain Morgan and informed they were to receive their first inoculation for tetanus and tuberculosis, which Morgan had been assured would cause no ill side effects amongst the men. Despite this, and perhaps because he had personal past experience of army inoculations, he granted the men 48 hours off duty. The inoculations also represented a clear signal that embarkation to France was imminent. That day, 2nd Lieutenant Huss reported to the company, but Morgan was still short of NCOs and commissioned officers, and crucially, artisan tools for his men. Worse still, despite the assurances of the army medics, 50% of the company were ill in bed the following day as a result of the inoculations. 
each man was given injections for tetanus toxoid, TT, and the combined typhoid, paratyphoid A and paratyphoid B, known collectively as TAB, TAB. One consolation, however, was that the rooms were reasonably warm, thanks to a coal order Morgan had secured from a local supplier the day before. It was still extremely cold outside, and the snow continued to fall from the grey and darkened skies. In their spare time, the men, who were not ill, huddled around in small groups and played cards and slowly got to know one another. In the afternoon, Morgan received his official orders via the War Office from CRE, Commander Royal Engineers, at Royal Engineer Headquarters regarding the embarkation to France. This is what he'd been waiting for, and he was keen to get his men ready. Although the men were given 48 hours leave, only a few had attempted to get home, and recreational opportunities for the remaining men were limited as a result of the severe weather. But then, Captain Morgan himself succumbed to the ill effect of the inoculations, and was confined to bed. The symptoms of vaccine fever were severe abdominal pain, a stiff arm where the injections had been administered, nausea, vomiting, and in some cases, a rash. In more extreme cases, men passed out, and there was no alternative but to take to bed and ride out the worst of it. It's now known that such side effects are a direct result of both the TT and TAB injections being taken together. That subsequent research also demonstrated cancels out the inoculating qualities of the paratyphoid B antigen. The mobilisation date for the company was fixed for the 23rd of January, but Morgan received notice from headquarters that 72 hours notice would be required to allow for special trains to transport the men to the ports. It was therefore impossible to meet the mobilisation timescale, and the short notice would have meant some men not being given leave. By the 22nd of January, it was still snowing heavily in Clacton, and it wasn't even possible for the men to be paraded. The following day, the weather cleared a little, and they were marched to the Butlins camp for a gas chamber test, a military procedure that military recruits still train for today. Later, the men were called to parade. Sergeant Major Brown barked out an order. All men that can drive and hold a current licence, one step forward now. And this is how Percy made the quick transition from electrician to driver. He was then given one of the newly commissioned three-ton Bedford trucks to drive. The vehicles didn't conform to army regulations, GW98, according to Percy, and had no tools or spare tyres. The rest of the company was also ill-equipped, and none of the promised tools had yet arrived for the tradesmen in the company. It was a poor omen of things to come. On the 25th of January, at 0900 hours, the company was mustered and prepared for final embarkation to France. Men were segregated by trade and placed into four sections plus one HQ section. Percy was soon tasked with transporting ammunition for five companies of sappers to Harwich in his new driving role under the command of 2nd Lieutenant Huss. Once at Harwich, they loaded onto a train ferry. Earlier in the day, the men had been given more musketry drill and issued with bayonets. 
1620 hours, the company was marched to the drill hall for their evening meal, and no one was allowed out without permission. Military police had increased in numbers around the camp to ensure that none of the men had second thoughts about the task ahead, although no one in 663 was contemplating that. There was an air of excitement and anticipation as the build-up continued. On the 30th of January, 20 days after the company was formed and on the stroke of midnight, there was a parade for final roll call. As the men lined up in four ranks on the parade ground, large plumes of collective steam rose gently upwards from their breaths, silhouetted in the bright moonlight of a clear, cold night. Shortly afterwards, Sergeant Major Brown announced that one, two and three sections, 168 men in all, would be marched to the station for embarkation under the command of Captain Morgan. These sections stood to attention and made a right turn before marching off into the darkness and towards the centre of Clacton. This was it. They were now on their way to France and in to the war. In the next episode, the boys of 663 arrive in France and settle down to some kind of normality and routine. But in early June, they begin to realise something has gone catastrophically wrong with the so-called Real Army, 200 miles to the north. From Aurora Media, this is Vang Sank Morgan's Army, a remarkable story of disaster, survival and ultimately a top-secret mission that would play a pivotal role in the success of the D-Day landings.